Hello again, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News, where we bring gospel thinking for today. Philip, great to have you with us again too. It's always good to be here. And it's been really wonderful to receive all the feedback and questions and comments that have been coming in over the last several weeks. And I thought we'd start today, Philip, by just touching on a couple of those questions and getting your response to them. Uh, Because the questions that have come in, in particular, there's been a number about the whole issue of tribalism that we dealt with a couple of issues ago to do with individualism and then collectivism and tribalism. And we were saying that by having a vision of who God is and by being connected with God, we can have the right attitude towards both. And we've had a couple of questions come in. I'll ask you the first one. It's from Mark, who's from the US, and he's asking us really to expand on the idea of national tribalism, which we mentioned kind of briefly in passing. Uh, That is, he wants to know how can we understand ourselves as rightly being part, in a sense, of a national tribe. It's who we are. It's where we're born. If the nation goes to war, we go to war. We're part of a national kind of group. And yet, how can we avoid the unhelpful tribalism and factionalism, not only politically in national tribes, but as Christians, kind of fusing our Christian tribe with the national one and thinking that in some way... Uh, the church and the state are kind of almost one tribe or should be. So he has a question about church and state and how our discussion of tribalism relates to that. What would you say? Yes, we are part of a nation. We're always part of a nation. You can't not be part of a nation. And yes, your nation goes to war or your nation's in drought or your nation's in prosperity, then you get part of the, the problem. Uh, we are... We're not individuals in that extreme sense as if we don't have any national ties at all. But our loyalties must not be first and foremost to our nation. We, of course, have the issue of democracy in our nation and our friend Mark from America also has that issue of democracy, which gives you a feel that is somewhat different to the ancient world, to the Bible world, where democracy is not the key element of your national identity, but we still have this sense of national identity, which which enters into our own self. You know, I am an Australian. Well, no, I'm not really. I'm a Christian. My loyalty must be first to Christ. But then gets confused when you go to a, a Christian nation. The secularism of Australia has made it very clear that this is not a Christian nation. In any shape or form? No, well, it has Christian foundations, Christian values, Christian history to it that has shaped it the way it is. But no, there is a clear separation. Not the same separation as America. It's a different separation of church and state. In Australia the state recognises the existence of religion and so can fund religious activities, whereas in America the separation is is total. But then in America you can get tax deduction for religious gifts, which in Australia you can't get those same tax deductions. So it, it's just a difficulty of, of people reading separation of church and state and think they're talking about the same thing. However, from a Christian perspective, I must be a member of my community, loving my neighbours, honouring the emperor, whoever that may be, uh, being obedient to the government that God has placed over me. But if I've got a choice between God and state, I must always choose God. 
And if this means that I'm going to be persecuted by the state, well, so be it, I'll be persecuted by the state. That's not happening much in our democracies. But, of course, we're, we're talking on a world web. There are people where to, to choose God over state is to put yourself in prison, is to run the very strong risk and reality of that. And so patriotism to the, the, the national tribe must not become part of our Christian way of life. We don't have that kind of my country right or wrong. Would it be right to say that it's similar in a way to the family? The family is a particular kind of tribe in the created order that God has made. We are members of families. It's a much closer-knit uh, tribe, a tribe that's more uh, real and important to us in many ways than the yes, nation. it is. It is. All the same, loyalty to Jesus trumps loyalty to family. Absolutely. And in much the same. Is that analogous to the way yes. loyalty to Jesus trumps yes. loyalty and, to and, nation? And Jesus puts it so dramatically in, in Luke's gospel. I think it's chapter 14, isn't it? About unless you hate your mother, father, brother, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, clearly we've got to have Jesus and God ahead of even the most fundamental biological tribe, namely our family. How much more then our, our nation from which we can uh, be excluded, from which we can move. I can never stop being a member of my family, but I can stop being an Australian. I can migrate elsewhere. It's a looser tribe and we mustn't make it as the, as the ultimate. Now, there are people who try and Christianise their nation. I think that's a mistake. It's a benefit that our nation adopts Christian values because that's God's value for the world. But to make the state into the church is a big error. To make the church into the state is a big error. Okay, let's move on to a second question, which is more about Christian tribalism in a way. Mm -hmm. um, we received a couple of pieces of feedback on this question. Um, let me read one from Lindsay. Um, I appreciated the most recent tribalism episode. I was wondering if you missed the elephant in the room that might deserve some attention, which is the nature of tribalism within the church and within Sydney Anglicanism in particular. I'm not in Sydney anymore and haven't been for almost six years, but it's been an interesting journey as I've readjusted who I consider in my tribe from where I was in Sydney. So now in the place in Australia where Lindsay is, there's no one close to where I'm at theologically. My tribe is basically anyone who believes the Bible is authority and is the way God speaks to us, let alone someone who might be a Reformed theologian or mm. complementarian and so on. So I'm just wondering if some reflection on the good and bad of tribalism would be helpful, and especially given that within Sydney Anglicanism, Philip himself had a role as a kind of tribal leader <laughs> for some time. So mm. what do we want to say about that, about the goods and the bad of church tribalism we all live in tribes in the sense that we all have friends with whom we agree uh, and with whom we share things in common and with whom we pursue common purposes yes yes common purposes common tasks and uh, that's a good thing and a right thing and we needn't be embarrassed about it and within tribes there are certain key people whom uh, we look to uh, great leaders that uh, people have, in a theological tribe. You know, we look to a person like Jim Packer or to John Stott and here are people whose teachings we agree with as tribal members, so to speak, 
and that helps unite us in our purpose, in our thinking, in our fellowshipping with each other. And there is nothing wrong with that in itself, and it's just an inevitability of life. Where it becomes wrong, of course, is that we have our loyalty to our tribe over above our loyalty to God or our loyalty to truth. And therein lies the real problem with with communalism, with tribalism, that we will not allow the truth of the gospel to direct our lives because we are taking the shortcut of allowing our gospel tribe to direct for us what we should or shouldn't be doing. And therein is the error. Uh, if you go, Lindsay, I'm glad you're out into another part of the world to be preaching the gospel, and terrific, that's great news. The fact that there are fewer people with whom you share in common the same ideas that you had in Sydney, um, well, that's part of being a missionary. That's just that's our missionary friends go to places where there are very few people who agree. And the few who do agree, yes, we have less in common with our friends than we do in, say, Sydney, but we still have certain fundamentals in common with our friends. It means our tribal relationships are looser. That's the way it is. In other words, the the church or evangelical or ministry tribes that we gather together in for common purpose and fellowship and so on, will keep shifting and developing and changing depending on where we are in our context, and that's absolutely right. Uh, and in every context, we need to keep loyalty to God, um, loyalty to the Scriptures and to the truth as that which binds us together. It's Christ who binds us together, n- not the tribe. And yes. we need to keep that at the forefront, which was kind of the original point we were making, I think, a few weeks ago in our post, uh, that if we hold Christ and God at the centre of things, it, it keeps us together. It allows us to understand the sense in which we're individuals and we're accountable and we need to function as individuals, but also the sense in which we rightly gather in groups and fellowship and collectives and tribes. Yep. We, we, readily, we readily perceive our opponents, or if you want to go further, our enemies, as a danger to our Christian faith. But actually our friends can be as great a danger because we don't want to lose friendship. We don't want to we don't want to disagree with people who are so important to us. And in fact, a tribe that is built on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is one that really should have great freedom in disagreement. Because we know that we haven't got everything right. It's like when a tribal leader shows they're sinful. Well, that's what we expect. That's part of our teaching. All people are sinful. We should never be surprised. Disappointed, yes, but we shouldn't be surprised because that's what the Bible teaches we're all like. Well, it's certainly true of you, Philip. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Basic reason I haven't sinned more is lack of opportunity. (laughs) And what you're saying points out that the danger in our tribalism is that we we stop being willing to disagree over the over the truth. We become we compromise, or we become sycophants towards a leader because we don't want to rock the boat, or we want advantage, um, rather than seeing that our leaders, whoever they are, 
Um, uh, sin is just like us, and we need to hold their teaching to the standard of the Bible like everybody else. Yeah. There's that lovely verse in 1 Timothy 4 where Paul tells Timothy about let the people see your progress. It's both in your life and in your doctrine. And so you're to follow the leader, not in that he has all the answers and has arrived, he's, he's finished, but rather you're to follow the leader in you watch him progressing in his own understanding and in his own changing of life. The pastor who has everything altogether fixed up completely, well, he doesn't exist to start with and it's an arrogance that will not help us. I need to see that this man is actually changing. He's growing in Christ-likeness because that's the encouragement to me to grow in Christ-likeness as well. And when leaders sin, as all people, when they sin, when our pastors sin against us or we against them, there's a need for forgiveness. And that's our other topic for today, the question of forgiveness. And this is one of those episodes where I'm going to run past you, Philip, a draft of an article that I've been putting together on the subject of forgiveness, and then we'll just get your reactions and see how you can help me improve it. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's a very good article, but... <laughs> Just don't tell me at the end of it that it's all wrong. Okay, so here we go. It's an article based on the fact that I've been doing some work in Matthew 18 recently, and I'm thinking of calling it the Kingdom of Mercy. In managing to segue so effortlessly from the sublime to the ridiculous, the Apostle Peter stands for all of us. In Matthew 16, he's the one who identifies Jesus as God's Christ, only to use his very next breath to tell God's Christ to stop speaking nonsense. And in Matthew 18, Peter's at it again, but in a more subtle mix of insight and complete misunderstanding. In verse 21 of Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus a well-known, a famous question, how many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And in the context, it's quite a bold and insightful question. Because Peter has just been listening to Jesus in the previous part of Matthew 18, saying that when your brother sins against you, you're supposed to go to him and to try to win him back. And if that doesn't work, you take someone else with you and so on and so forth. What if I do that, thinks Peter to himself? What if I go to my brother and he repents and I forgive him? Okay, that's fine. But you don't know my brother. This could happen a lot. Is there any limit as to how often I have to go to him and then to forgive him? So it's a really understandable question, but in typical Petrine fashion, also a stupid one, as Jesus goes on to demonstrate through the famous parable of the unmerciful servant, the story about the slave who is forgiven a vast debt by his master, but then immediately refuses to forgive a much smaller debt to one of his fellow slaves. And I've been pondering this passage again recently in preparation for a sermon. And I've noticed four very striking things in the passage that I never really saw before. And that's what I want to outline just in the next few minutes. The first one is how the story clarifies what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness is the waiving or cancelling of a debt. Wrongdoing of all kinds always generates some kind of debt or obligation between people. It might be very tangible, like the stupendous sum of money that the servant owes in the parable, or it might be a less tangible obligation, such as when you've hurt me or insulted me or disadvantaged me in some way by what you've done. 
Forgiveness means declining to call that debt in. It means saying, I won't insist on payment. I won't take an eye for an eye. I'll forego the pleasure of tearing strips off you. I won't cut you off from me in relationship as you deserve. In fact, I'll open my heart to you again. I'll waive the obligation, even though that really costs me something now and will very likely cost me again in the future. And this is why forgiveness is so hard, why we all find it so hard. It always costs the forgiver something. In the case of the parable, it costs the king the stupendous sum of money that he's owed. And he bears the entirety of that loss himself. And this is the second thing that I saw in the parable. And perhaps I'm just thick, but I had never really noticed before just what a perfect picture of Jesus' kingdom the first half of the parable represents. Even though that's exactly how Jesus introduces it, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who settles accounts and so on. What Peter needs to be taught is that to enter the kingdom of heaven, he himself must be forgiven a monumental debt that he owes to the king, a debt he could never, ever repay. In the story, the debt is captured in the almost comical sum of 10,000 talents that is owed by the servant. In Jesus' day, a talent was equivalent to 6,000 silver coins, or 6,000 denarii, and a single denarius was a day's wage for a labourer. So the servant, just to do the sums, the servant owes the king 60 million denarii, which in today's dollars, doing the calculations on the basis of what an average labourer earns for an average day's work today, is around $9 billion. Now, how a humble servant could rack up that kind of debt with his master is not really the point. The point is that it's an almost comically large debt, a debt beyond imagining, a debt that could never, ever, ever be repaid. And when the king compassionately does waive and cancel that debt, he is bearing the entirety of that enormous cost himself. Now, Peter doesn't yet grasp that this is what the kingdom of heaven is really like. That this is why Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be rejected and killed by the elders and chief priests and scribes, as he keeps telling him. That he is about to die to pay this stupendous debt, to give his life as a ransom for many, as Jesus says just a couple of chapters later. I don't think Peter grasps either the size of the debt that is on his ledger. It is vast beyond imagining and will render him liable to judgment. Nor does he yet understand the equally stupendous cost that the king will bear in cancelling that debt so that he can enter the kingdom of heaven. If he did, he wouldn't be asking silly questions about how many times he has to forgive his brother. To those who've been shown such extravagant mercy... It's outrageous and appalling to be unforgiving towards others. And this is the point of the second half of the story, with the outlandishly wicked behaviour of the servant. The servant fails to see the implications of what has been done for him by the king. And Peter doesn't quite appreciate this either, or else he wouldn't have asked this question. And this leads me to the third thing that really struck me afresh from this parable. Just how seriously Jesus is condemning the unwillingness of kingdom members to forgive others. If we don't forgive others their debts, he says, 
we can't expect to have our own debts forgiven. And verses 34 and 35 of the passage put this in a really shocking way. In anger, his master delivered him, that's the wicked servant, to the jailers, which is a bit kind of polite. It actually says torturers, until he should pay all his debt which will be basically forever. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now this is nothing new from Jesus. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, he says much the same thing after the Lord's Prayer. To be forgiven by our heavenly Father, we must also extend forgiveness to others. And we find this a bit stark and perhaps even disturbing. It feels almost kind of good worksy, as if we earn or perhaps keep our forgiveness by being forgiving towards others. But this is not the case. The forgiveness we receive from God is massive and free, or at least it's free for us. For God, it's enormously costly. Jesus' point is that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of extravagant mercy. If we reject that by refusing to embrace forgiveness in our own relationships with each other, We're rejecting it for ourselves as well. We can't have forgiveness for me, but not for thee. We need to decide whether we wish to be part of Jesus' kingdom of mercy or not. And so to receive mercy, but not to extend mercy, is just outrageous, as it is in the story. And this, of course, has a very real and practical edge to it. Many of the deepest hurts and wrongs that we experience will come from those who are close to us, from our families and friends, from our church families, including our pastors. We will inevitably wrong each other, and we will inevitably generate obligations and debts to each other. And if that happens, or rather I should say when that happens, we must forgive our brother from our heart, with the same kind of unrestrained mercy that we've been shown by God. To do otherwise is as appalling as the actions of the unmerciful servant. And that brings me to the fourth thing that I noticed in this parable for the first time, which is how it addresses the common question that always arises at this point. And that is, what if the person won't acknowledge their wrongdoing? What if they don't or won't repent? Must I still forgive? Well, the answer to that frequently asked question is really given in the previous episode, the one that Peter is really responding to by his question about forgiveness. The two episodes are a pair. As often as my brother sins and comes to me for forgiveness, then I must forgive him. But if my brother sins against me and doesn't come to me for forgiveness, well, then the previous episode tells you what to do. You should go to him and show him his fault and seek to win him back. And if he won't listen to you, take some others with you and seek to convince him. And if he won't listen to them, as a final step, take it to the church. The previous episode in verses 15 to 20 is about the unrepentant brother and how to deal with that situation. Forgiveness and compassion are still the driving motives here. That's why we go to such lengths to win his repentance, because then forgiveness and restoration can take place. Where there's no acknowledgement by both sides that a debt exists, in other words, it's very hard to cancel it. It's very hard for there to be forgiveness. But when our brother does seek forgiveness, there really can be no limit on the mercy and forgiveness that we extend. It may be a sizable debt that we're being asked to waive. 
the amount that the unmerciful servant was owed by his fellow slave was not a trivial amount. It was perhaps about $15,000 in today's money. But we must forgive. Because in the kingdom of heaven, it's forgiveness all the way down. Okay, Philip, well, there you go. There's my first draft. How can I improve it? Or perhaps, as you used to say at the end of all your sermons, comments and questions? <laughs> well, the first comment that uh, I really put to you is it's, it's marvellous just to think how great is God's forgiveness, how enormous is the forgiveness of God that that this parable brings out, especially when you put it in terms of those numbers and figures that is being spoken of by Jesus, and you know, how petty are our disagreements with each other in contrast to the real sinfulness of our hearts and rejection of God. Um, it is just, it's a wonderful passage, and, and thank you for bringing your attention to it again and to get us thinking more about these issues. But, and then the but comes. Of course, I was waiting for the but. <laughs> you wait for the but. But the trouble with that is the bit before the but is really more important than what comes after the but. Well, take it as read that it's a wonderful article, but now you're going to help me improve it. No, I didn't say anything about the article being wonderful. I just said how God was wonderful. <laughs> Let's get this clear. <laughs> Uh, but there are things about the passage that you don't draw attention to. Uh, you, that's part of the beauty of teaching the Bible. There are umpteen sermons can be preached on any one passage, all of which can be true to the passage. And so there are things here that that grabbed me as we as we went through, and some of them are slight disagreements, I think. So the first thing that you've said is how the story clarifies what forgiveness really is. And I'm not sure that it does. I think it clarifies what it involves, not necessarily what it is. So you said, forgiveness is the waiving or cancelling of a debt. Well, that happens. There is a cancelling of a debt here. But that's what happens as a result of forgiveness, rather than that is what forgiveness itself is. Forgiveness is a problem word to us because it's so fundamental to Christianity. It's so much part of the, the kingdom of mercy that it's, it's our word. But yet it covers a whole variety of different actions, one of which is cancelling a debt. But that's not what it is. That's just a, one of the ways in which it functions. Because you notice that you've got to have forgiveness from the heart, which is not just cancelling a debt. It's the word mercy is used here. You see, he had mercy upon the person. It's and almost used as a synonym, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So there's, synonym is a good way of saying it. They're not equivalents. No. But they have big overlap between them is part of the problem. You'll notice, for example, the servant... He's not a servant, he's a slave. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to that. You called him slave once, but you then moved into servant or the language. But it's the fact that he's a slave is an important element to the whole thing because one of the common forms of slavery was debt slave. And he's a man who is enslaved by his debts. And one of the ways in which 
the master will solve the problem is by selling him on so as to get some money back. Not only sell him on, but sell on his family. And all that he has, it All says. that he has. Mm. Uh, and so the, the, the sense of releasing a person from their debt and their indebtedness has to do with the concept of slavery as well. Um, and so redemption has to do with it. But you notice that the slave doesn't ask for forgiveness. He asks for patience. Be patient with me and I will repay, is what he's being. And so the master then has mercy on him by releasing him, is the word that's used. That is, releasing him from slavery and cancelling his debts. Now, I think that heightens the point that you're making about the seriousness of our of our sin, as Peter misunderstands or doesn't understand how indebted he is, because slavery, sin, is a slavery, and we are actually not free. But we keep on thinking of ourselves as free citizens, when in fact our slavery to sin is very great. I don't think you've persuaded me that forgiveness is a different thing from the cancelling of a debt, because you've said that his slavery is that he's indebted, that he's a, he's a debt slave. Yes. And to release him, to forgive him, to have mercy on him, necessarily entails the cancelling of his debt. It's the cancelling of his debt that frees him. Otherwise, he remains a slave. No, you can be freed from a slave and still carry a debt. But that's not what the story is about. The story is about his... Sorry, how can you be freed as a slave, as a debt slave, without the cancellation or in some sense waiving of the debt that you owe? Well, I presume you see, the two words are used. He released him and... Well, dear listener, cutting in here with my editor's hat on, our conversation sort of proceeded along in a very rambly, roundabout, back-and-forward, nitpicky fashion for about another 10 minutes on the subject of forgiveness and also about repentance and whether the two passages of Matthew 18 are really about repentance as such or simply someone acknowledging and becoming aware of their wrongdoing. But I'll spare you some of that detail, which got a bit tedious, and come out the other side when we're talking about the aim, the aim of the passage in terms of how we think about our brother and our relationship with our brother. The aim is to us to, to to win my brother. The aim is to is to restore the relationship. The aim is the aim is not judgmentalism. Even when it says I'm to treat the the church you to treat the person as a uh, who will not listen to the church as a tax collector and a Gentile. How do you treat Gentiles and tax collectors in the ministry of Jesus? It's by sharing them with the gospel that they might be saved. Jesus doesn't treat the tax collectors like the Pharisees do. It's the exact reverse is how Jesus addresses and, and relates to tax collectors. In other words, you keep offering mercy and forgiveness. Yes. And pleading with the person to accept and understand their circumstance and receive mercy and forgiveness. Well, the first thing a person has to do is acknowledge, as you would put it here, the debt, acknowledge their sin. And so you keep working at doing that. Um, but you do it not for judgmental purposes. You do it for salvation purposes. You do it so as to rescue them back. And so desiring for my brother 
to be forgiven and to be in relationship with me and in relationship with God, whosoever sins you bound are bound, whosoever sins you loose are loosed, is in part of the passage, uh, is, is really the goal all the time. So forgiveness from my heart is the, to mix metaphors, is the knee-jerk reaction to, for all Christians in all circumstances. We need a heart-jerk reaction. A heart-jerk reaction, yes. Of mercy. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Philip, as always, and I'll ponder how to sharpen and improve what I've written as a result. I love getting this kind of feedback. And the result of that improvement, the final version of that article, will come out in the newsletter version of Two Ways News. So if you're reading the, the newsletter version, you'll see the sort of finished, revised version of the article. If you're listening, as you obviously are now, you've heard the first draft and our attempts to improve it. Thanks again for listening and for being here. And as we kind of said at the beginning, we do love to receive your feedback and comments and questions. Send them in and we'll respond in the best way we can. You can just hit reply to the Two Ways News email that comes if you're a subscriber to that email, and I'd recommend you do. Or you can email me at tonyjpayne at me.com. Well, that's about it for this episode of Two Ways News. Thanks again, Philip, for being with us. It's a pleasure, as always. And I think it's your turn this time to pray. It's my turn to close in prayer, and I'm glad to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard for us to fathom just how much you've forgiven us and what the size and scale of the debt is that you've cancelled through the death, death of Jesus on our behalf. Your kingdom is a kingdom of mercy and we're so grateful and thankful for that, Father, because we could never enter it otherwise. And we pray that the values of the kingdom of mercy, the unlimited and unrestrained and generous, lavish, extravagant mercy that you've shown us would flow into our lives that we'd live that life of mercy with each other, that we wouldn't hold grudges against each other, that we'd be quick to forgive, and that we'd never tire of forgiving as you forgive us. Now give us that kind of heart that forgives our brother from our heart over and over again. And we pray you'd work this in us by your Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.